Hello, and welcome to the Complex Care Journal Club podcast. My name is Emily Goodwin. I'm a pediatrician in complex care at the Beacon Program at Children's Mercy Kansas City and your host for this episode. I am one of the course directors for this podcast, where we seek to discuss emerging evidence in the care of children with medical complexity and its implications for practice. I am delighted to have Dr. Arda Hotz, who is the medical director for the Rainbow CASA program for primary care for children with medical complexity and the Spina Bifida program at Boston Children's Hospital, joining me today. She is the lead author of an article, Categorization of Universal Coding System to Distinguish Use of Durable Medical Equipment and Supplies in Pediatric Patients, published in JAMA Network in October 2023. Arda, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Emily. So I'd like to start, if we can, and ask you to share a little bit about your study, starting with how you came up with this. What gap did you identify that led you to your research aims? Yeah, as a primary care doctor um, and complex care doctor who focuses on working with kids with medical complexity, I appreciated early on that many of our patients use durable medical equipment and supplies or DMEs became interested in how our patients use them, what supplies were more commonly used, and how a child's complexity related to the amount of supplies that they used. And that's where this project stemmed from. We started by reviewing codes that the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid use um, to bill for durable medical equipment and supplies that are called HICPIC codes. small team of us looked through each of the codes and really tried to pull out and focus on those that seemed to indicate use of durable medical equipment and supplies. We took all of those codes and we reviewed and categorized them in a way that seemed most logical to us by both durable medical equipment type and then within larger organ system categories. Three of us did this initial categorization, which took a long time because there's lots of codes. And then we made our first attempt at classification of all of the DME codes. And then we ran it by a series of specialists in each of the different organ systems to make sure that this made sense with them because this is oftentimes, these are the equipment that they write for and the prescriptions that they write for. So so that was really useful. So we took this system and we applied it to a Medicaid multi-state database that included both inpatient and outpatient claims. We looked at the claims in the database and the patients in those claims, and we classified them as either having a chronic condition or not having a chronic condition using the AHRQ chronic condition indicator system, and then further classified those with chronic conditions using Dr. Kefudner's Complex Chronic Condition System, or CCC. And then we found, maybe not surprisingly, that most of our patients who used durable medical equipment and supplies had chronic conditions. There were a subset of kids, uh, about 10% of pediatric patients, who didn't have a chronic condition, who did use durable medical equipment and supplies. But then we were able to look into those and found that most of those were actually ophthalmologic, like lens and frames. In looking more at the AHRQ chronic condition indicator system, myopia or low vision weren't always considered a chronic condition. And so that's how that happened. Um, 
And then we looked at kids with more chronic conditions. So among the patients with any chronic condition, 26% of patients end up using durable medical equipment and supplies. And then again, maybe not surprisingly, accounted for 80% of all spending for durable medical equipment and supplies. When we looked further at that 26% of patients, and we kind of divided them up based on the number of chronic conditions that they had, as expected, those patients with two or more chronic conditions used the most durable medical equipment and then accounted for the most durable medical equipment spending. Another aspect that we looked at, well, which durable medical equipment and supplies were most common. And when we look at it from an organ system classification, the most common type of supplies were like musculoskeletal supplies, which those could be wheelchair, wheelchair repairs or AFOs, braces for the feet. And then in terms of um, the specific types of durable medical equipment that were common, the most common were enteral supplies, followed closely by both diapers and formula. But interestingly, even though not the most common, the highest cost or the highest spend supplies really were parenteral supplies and parenteral nutrition itself. And then a a little bit farther down was tracheostomy supplies. Thanks, Arda. I know a lot of patients, especially those with complex chronic conditions, rely on medical equipment and supplies for their optimal function. I thought it was really interesting when I was reading about the methods that the expert reviewers that refined the categorizations included an insurance representative and a family representative. Could you tell us more about that? Yeah, I think we wanted to make sure that all the important stakeholders kind of weighed in. And I think that in the end, Patients and caregivers are the people who are using durable medical equipments and the supplies on a daily basis. They're the ones who are navigating when there's vendor issues and supply issues. And so it it felt really, really important to have their voice in this. And then I think along the same lines, I understand about durable medical equipment and supplies from a very clinical perspective. And I'm starting to have a better understanding of the financial aspects and the things that go into the discussions with insurance companies. I think that it was really helpful to have a representative from the insurance company who really had knowledge about approvals and years of experience in navigating DME. Could you tell us a little bit more about how you recruited an insurance representative as a member of the study team? Absolutely. We were lucky early on in our study um, as we were starting to think about the statistical analysis and still kind of reviewing the codes to get a grant from the Children and Youth with Special Healthcare Needs Network. Part of that process and that junior investigator grant was Uh, matching me with a mentor within this field. In this case, they matched me with somebody who worked within the insurance world, which was very helpful because it was a perspective that was new to me and I think was a unique perspective in this study. 
Yeah, certainly involving them as well as a family member and the specialists strengthen your study significantly. And I hope that it's a model that other researchers can follow. And this was a cross-sectional analysis. And like you said, using those HICPIC codes, which stands for Healthcare Common Procedure Coding System. And certainly you're right, as a clinician myself, navigating durable medical equipment is something that I'm much more familiar on the clinical end. And as a researcher, it's very interesting to learn about things that go into these billing databases. But it seems like a really rich resource. And this is one of the first studies that I've seen that included some of the inpatient and outpatient durable medical equipment to try to classify the true prevalence. Did you find that your results correlated with what you see clinically? Grossly, when you look at the results, it was exactly what we expected. I think we expected the most complex patients to use the most durable medical equipment and to have the highest spend on durable medical equipment. It didn't seem as surprising to have patients who were on parenteral nutrition to have that as the highest cost. A big limitation for using HICPIC codes to think about all of the durable medical equipment that somebody has is that we are determining whether or not someone has durable medical equipment based on if there's a build code within the time frame you're looking at data. If you are just looking at a year of billing or claims and a child had a wheelchair and received it three years ago, but hadn't had any adaptions or repairs to it within the time frame, then we might actually miss that in terms of uh, frequency of wheelchair use among our population. So I think that the biggest takeaway there is that you can look at this in terms of how much durable medical equipment is billed per year or within the time frame that we're looking at, but it is probably an underestimation of all of the durable medical equipment use for our patients, especially when you're considering durable medical equipment use that's not billed on a monthly or every other month basis. Certainly. And you point that out as a limitation that the prevalence was likely undercounted. The other thing I think about is that many patients pay for items that were not covered by insurance out of pocket or may seek alternative funding sources through grants or other funding. Are there other challenges that you identified or opportunities when developing or conducting your study? I think that what you brought up, the idea that sometimes people buy things out of pocket Sometimes we don't use the regular systems. Sometimes we get loaners from early intervention or from the school. So all of those could further underestimate the durable equipment need for our patient population. But I think that this is a really good start to start to understand it. Certainly. It's an important first step to understand how DME is used in our patients. What do you think the implications are for clinical practice or specifically, what do you recommend for members of the interprofessional care team for children with medical complexity based off your findings? I think this is an exciting first step. I think we are hoping to use and have other people use the categorization system we created to understand the needs and spends of populations people work with. 
our categorization system is open source. And so we're encouraging other people to try it out and see if they could use it to better understand the population they're working with. There's a few different areas that you discuss of potential results of this study, such as looking at measurement of root cause analysis from DME errors and adverse events across types of DME, state level evaluations of supply and demand. So for me, I live in Kansas City and we are serving patients both in Kansas and Missouri. And since uh, DME and equipment and supplies come from often Medicaid, it's very state dependent how that's done. So I think there might be some implications there, as well as talking about how we can use this to look at outcomes. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that. I think that the truth is that for some patients, especially if you have a single vendor, when durable medical equipment and supply coordination works well, it can be really, really helpful for a patient on a day-to-day basis. It can take a lot of stress off of the patients and the caregiver in terms of care coordination. But when it doesn't, whether it's related to lapses, things not being sent in time, it can be dangerous. And it can also just cause an extraordinary amount of stress. I feel like there is a lot of room for improvement. And I think that some places do this very, very well. And sometimes it's hard to do it very well due to supply shortages and due to insurance rules and stuff like that. Do you have any messages for patients and families from your study? The reason we got into this topic in the first place was because managing durable medical equipment is such a big part of the care and coordination of care for a child with medical complexity, and it can be so difficult. (laughs) Many of our patients have multiple vendors that they use at once, and sometimes changing formulas or changing between types of supplies can be really challenging because you have to change vendors and it puts you at a risk of a lapse for durable medical equipment. I think many of these supplies are life-saving and we just recognize how important this is for our kids and there's a lot of room for us to focus on this and improve the processes here. The first step is kind of understanding how people use it. Yes, I hope this leads to advocacy for better support and resources for ensuring that patients with need for these supplies have them available. And then are there any next steps from your work or lessons learned you'd like to share with researchers in this field? I think that the the next steps that we see and that um, I know some people are already starting to look into is using this categorization system to understand durable medical equipment use in specific populations. I think there are some limitations to the current ways that we measure medical complexity, and this could be a really interesting 
adjunctive measure of medical complexity. I think because of the limitations of it, I don't think it could be a standalone measure, but taken into account with some of the other ones, I think this could be really interesting. Thanks so much for your time, Dr. Hotz, and thank you to you and your team for advancing the field of complex care. Thanks for listening to the Complex Care Journal Club podcast. We aim to highlight research that has the potential to be practice-changing, that values patient and family engagement, is relevant across disciplines and diagnoses, and uses high-quality or novel research methods. We invite you to join the conversation by suggesting an article that you would like to see discussed in this podcast using the form provided on the Open Pediatrics YouTube channel. Thank you for joining us.